This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm trying to guess. I'm, I, I, I like to entertain myself with guessing accents. I'm, would, would I be right in saying Northern Ireland? Close. Scottish. Ah. Scottish, ah, oh, damn it. <laughs> I, lived in Glasgow, I lived in Glasgow for a year. Wow, what about? 1997, 98, a long time ago. What were you up to over here? Uh, it was a, a postgraduate program. Um, it was called the, uh, the John Logie Baird Center. It doesn't exist anymore, but it was this like media studies program with uh, Glasgow University and Strathclyde University that film, it had like the film studies program at Glasgow University. Uh, this professor, Simon Frith, was a Strathclyde. He was doing popular music studies. And so I did this like popular music studies program. Why do I know the name Simon Frith? I think he's a pretty well-known music, popular music scholar. He was on the, um, I think he was on the Mercury Music Prize board for a while, maybe. And I think he's at, maybe he's at Sterling University now. I can't remember. Yeah, they've got a pretty big arts thing going on up there, I think. Yeah, I mean, he's been writing about music for like at least... 40 or 50 years and his brother is Fred Frith who like was a, was a fairly well-known like kind of like improv jazz musician kind of person you had uh do you not used to have something to do with improv jazz as well when you were in college like a radio show or something I was I listened to to a, quite a bit but I never actually like played any but yeah when I was in college I, I did you know I did quite a few radio shows I did like a jazz show and a rock show yeah, they're in, when I went to college in Chicago in the early to mid 90s, and there was a lot of uh, kind of like that kind of music. There's this dude, John Corbett, who still lives in Chicago, who uh, was a grad student when I was at Northwestern. He's like a big, he's really into like kind of like the European like improv free jazz scene. And he, I think, almost single handedly was responsible for bringing a lot of the kind of like European great improvisers over to Chicago to play shows. and they would play shows with a lot of the Chicago jazz musicians and kind of, you know, created a bit of a, of a scene then at the time. And there was like a kind of like a weekly improv jazz series at the empty bottle back in like the mid nineties. I remember. So it's an interesting time. Is that what kind of drew you to the cloud? Nothing's release last or not cloud. Nothing's, but the Baldi um, thing, you know, the kind of free form jazz records. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I've always, you know, you know, Carpac doesn't really release jazz music, but, I listen to a lot of jazz music. I listen to all, all types of music, but it was just kind of like a Dylan and, and Jason from Cloud Nothings were talking about this record. And I was like, oh, that sounds cool. Like, you know, let, uh, let me know how it goes. Like, I think it would be cool for, for us to release it because uh, I like to keep the label, you know, kind of like diverse and interesting and putting out different types of music. So it just uh, it was a good opportunity. And they're, you know, it wasn't like, oh, jazz record, let's put it out. I mean, they are very talented musicians and dylan basically grew up playing saxophone 
he was in like school orchestras and stuff. Um, so, and you know, they definitely know their, their history and stuff. So. It's interesting. You were saying, you know, you like to kind of keep it fresh and put out a lot of different stuff on the label. But when you first started, mm-hmm. it was kind of centered around the electronic thing. Mm-hmm. Is it easier to begin when you kind of have something like that to center yourself around and then kind of diversify and becomes quite a natural process? Or mm-hmm. I mean, I guess I wasn't really, I was really thinking about it, to be honest, when I first started, like when I started the label, I was living in New York City and it was like, you know, 1999. And, you know, I was like DJing with friends at this club every week. And we were playing like all kinds of like weird electronic music and like IBM stuff. There wasn't really, we were like pretty much like the only people doing that kind of stuff in in New York City at the time. And it was, you know, pretty, pretty new laptops were becoming cheaper and more powerful. So people were finally able to like kind of make their own music digitally for the first time. But anyway, so, so there were... I was meeting all these people and that, that was just sort of how it came about. I was like working at a record store and like DJing and I was kind of looking for something else to do with my life. You know, I obviously was thinking I, well, not obviously, but I was thinking, you know, can't work in a record store the rest of my life. Being a, like a super music nerd, I, I had thought about starting a label years before and stuff, but I, my, I always talked myself out of it. My musical tastes were always kind of like changing so quickly. And I always felt like music labels had, like a thing going on with a certain type of music. And I always kind of talked myself out of it, but for whatever reason at this point in my life, I was like, you know what, there's like, I'm meeting like all these cool people who are making awesome music, electronic music. So I'm just going to like start an electronic label. You know, that's what I did. And, uh, went around, went away like that for a few years. And then I kind of got as I guess to be expected, I got kind of tired of just putting out electronic music and started looking to, get involved with different types of music and it still kind of was electronic for a while, but with like some other stuff mixed in. And then, but I think I feel like the the story is kind of like by the time I moved down to the DC area, like 2005, uh, like a year or two later, it's kind of like, I just kind of like got to the point where I was like, you know what? I don't think anyone cares besides me. If this is an electronic label, I'm just going to put out whatever I want. That was kind of like when car park started just becoming uh, more eclectic, I guess. You know, we started putting out more like bands and stuff, you know, got involved with the Baltimore scene and uh, like Beach House and Dan Deacon and a lot of other people in the area at that time. Is that why the imprints kind of started as well when you began to diversify? Does it become easier to kind of categorize it a little bit? Yeah, I was like, I had Car Park and I was like, okay, Car Park's an electronic label, but I'm getting kind of tired of just playing electronic music. But for some reason, you know, at that point, I would, I was like, I didn't think I could actually put it, other st- types of music on car park. I was still kind of like limiting myself. So then I was like, well, then I'll, you know, we'll start some imprints and was uh, friendly with some of the guys in Animal Collective. And I was like, well, these guys, this, these guys are awesome. Like, we, I should start a label with them because, you know, they, there was a thing back then when they first started, it was a little bit confusing, I thought, because, you know, they, they, there were four of them and, they didn't want to call themselves Animal Collective when they first started. They didn't want to be like labeled. And so the so they were just when they would play, they would just be like it would just be like billed as like the members who were playing, like AV Terror and Panda Bear or AV Terror, Panda Bear, and Geologist. So then so so I was like, well, you know, we should start this label. And so it would be like Animal Collective label, and that way it would kind of like maybe eliminate some of the confusion as to like who's doing what or you know, it wouldn't people would have to wonder so much. Um, and then also at the same, around the same time I had met Dan Selzer, um, who was DJing had like this like post-punk, uh, DJ party in the, in the lower side of Manhattan. We were talking and he was like trying to reissue this theoretical girls, uh, record, which is like, you know, this like post-punk band that Glenn Bronco was in and uh, Jeffrey Lone, he kind of had them, he had like the audio and he was talking to Jeff Lone and he had like the ideas, but he didn't really have like, he didn't really know how to like kind of get it out there. So I was like, well, you know, if we both work together, we could like have this cool like post-punk label. I mean, he, he wanted to do a post-punk label from the beginning, but you know, I was just, when we started talking, I was like, well, you know, you can pick the projects and I'll, you know, kind of do all the you know other stuff that 
is not your strong suit. And uh, that was kind of how acute started. And so I had kind of like those three labels for a while. Those two label sub labels kind of petered out after many years. And then, so now we, we do have two other sub labels at the moment. We have, um, uh, company records with, uh, which is kind of like Chaz from Tori and Waz label. And then we have, uh, wax nine, which is uh, Sadie from speedier T's and say 13's label. When you first kind of started off doing those imprints, was it common for artists to kind of be that collaborative with a label in that way and kind of have their own thing going on? No, maybe there were, there were a few, maybe kind of like artist driven labels. I'm sure we weren't the first one to do that or anything. I don't know if, I don't know if it was common, but I'm sure there were people who had done it, you know, and where I got the idea from. I don't think it just kind of came to me out of nowhere, but I can't think of anything off the top of my head, to be honest. Has the way in which that collaboration kind of functions when it's an artist collaborating with a label, has that different and changed and evolved in any way as time's gone on? I don't think so. It's, you know, it's, I would say it's, you know, obviously a bit more difficult to run an imprint with kind of like, you know, another person, because then you have more people more cooks to deal with, so to speak, but it's not that much different. I mean, essentially we, you know, it's kind of like behind the scenes, we're all doing pretty much the same thing. It's just, uh, has a different logo on the back. Yeah. Still the same team behind it though. Yeah. It's the, it's all the same people, you know, like, you know, the only difference is like with a, a company release, we're working more with, you know, Chaz cause he likes to be involved with like, you know, artwork or audio stuff or Sadie on a wax night release. Whereas, you know, if it's just car park release, we're just basically working directly with the artist or if they have a manager or something like that. Is that something that kind of indie labels can offer maybe that the majors can't? That kind of closer sense of collaboration where they're, where they're involved in every aspect in a way that a lot of artists seem to want to be nowadays? Probably. I mean, I don't, I've never really worked at a major label, but uh, I would imagine it would be a lot easier to do that kind of stuff with an indie label just because uh, at least with us, we're, we're used to like our whole thing is to work with the artist directly as much as possible and have them as involved as they want to be and make sure everything's the way they want it. Whereas, you know, I know that probably happens on major labels, but I know there's also stories about, you know, a people like telling people that they can't do certain things and that sort of stuff. And, you know, we don't, we don't usually get involved in that kind of stuff unless um, unless there's something really, really striking that we have to say something about, I guess. But uh, I'm sure there are some artist side labels involved or affiliated with major labels, but I can't, obviously I can't speak, to them, speak about them. What, what do you mean when you say something kind of striking that you would have to say something about? I don't know. Like, I mean, I don't, I don't know if it's ever happened to us, but like, I don't know, someone like, had something that was like horribly like racist or homophobic or just like something that was just like, Oh no, we can't, you know, we can't let this go kind of thing, you know, or if like, I don't know if like we thought something sounded so bad that, you know, it's like we had to say something, you know, be an interesting conversation. It's yeah, it's a little awkward, but we've, we've not with the sub labels, but you know, there's been a couple, I remember over the years, there's been a couple of conversations we've had with ours where we're just like, you know, I don't, I'm sure if this is your best work, like maybe let's, you know, try again or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. You're trying to be encouraging, but not. It's a delicate thing. Yeah. Obviously you don't want to like shatter someone's ego or anything like that. Did the record change after that? Did that conversation have an impact upon it? Yeah. I mean, well, still, still waiting for the record, (laughs) but yeah. I was checking out as well. You've got the the Carport Records Office playlist kind of kicking back. Is that is it, do you curate that? Um, I occasionally stick my head in there and put some stuff on there, but I think it's mostly the the rest of the staff. I'm an old man now, and I've kind of like my days of top ten lists and whatnot are behind me. <laughs> but I used to be just like super into like making lists and like making end of year best of top ten lists, all that kind of stuff, but. I, don't know, I feel like sometimes I look I look back at some of those lists and I just like just makes me like squirm like how I feel like I was like a bit pretentious and whatever like I'll, you know like 2001 best of and I'm like looking at it I'm like I don't know any of these records <laughs> like I was just trying to be like really cool and like pick ten obscure records that no I thought no one would have heard of. Did you go back and listen to any of them? I don't think so. My my records are 
all over the place now. I've got like a I've got like a, a little bit of them here, but most of them are in self storage. And we moved house in like 2013, and a bunch of records went to self storage. And I literally have not taken most of them out of the boxes since then. <laughs> so I've been it's kind of a little sad, but such is life when you've got children and whatnot. And and you know when there's there's music on the internet, pretty much any music you'd want to listen to at the touch of a button, there's not much uh, incentive to want to go into a self-storage facility and alphabetize and organize thousands of records. When you first started off the label, did you print vinyl or were you kind of just CDs? Yeah, we did vinyl from the beginning. I mean, the the very first release was a CD only, but the second release had CD and LP, you know, because it was an electronic label and kind of like DJ kind of focused a little bit. And so it was always important for me personally to have vinyl of our releases because that was kind of the world I was living in at the time. Like I was, I was buying just pretty much vinyl at that point, like the early 2000s, I would say. When did you kind of first notice that resurgence starting to bleed into the kind of cultural mainstream, I guess? Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's hard for me to say really because you read articles every few years about resurgence of vinyl and, you know, from our my perspective, you know, it's like we've we've always been doing vinyl. So the only change that I noticed was the change from like when you would when we would do one format releases initially when we started. You know, if we thought the release was not like going to be a huge release or we did, just didn't have a budget, we and to only, if we only had the budget to do like one format, we would do like a CD only release. And then I think at some point uh, I'd have to look into it, but I think some point maybe around like 2007, eight or nine area, maybe it was when it turned into like one format releases became vinyl and digital instead of, at least for us, um, we made that kind of like switch over because more people were buying vinyl than CDs. Sounds like you were a little bit ahead of the curve. Maybe. Um, I, I think it started with the, the acute uh, post-punk reissues and, you know, Dan kept bugging me. He's like, you know, we really, let's do, you know, let's do vinyl instead. Like the people who buy these, releases they're like you know vinyl people and so after maybe a, a year or so of him hassling me i was like okay you're right let's do it it's, it's interesting to see how the music industry has changed over the last kind of 20 years since you've been doing the label even out with the you know the whole kind of vinyl resurgence thing just the way that it shifted with the whole digital wave and everything that's happened as a result of that do you like the music industry and the way that it's changed? Do you feel like it's changed in a positive way for indie labels? I think it's in a fairly good spot at the moment. I mean, I uh, just from kind of like a uh, environmental perspective, I like that music is streamed more than having to buy physical products just because there's kind of less waste involved and less stuff and plastic and petroleum products that have to be used. So that's that's definitely good, but yeah, I was I was definitely thinking. I mean, it's, it has definitely been crazy. You know, like when I first started, the label was kind of like right when Napster was it going, and people were like uploading music, and people were just listening to whatever they wanted for free, and it was just like kind of chaotic. And I like started a label like basically at the point where like you know people were like stopped buying music. You know, luckily we kind of got to a point where. People were got comfortable like paying ten dollars a month or hearing ads to listen to music legitimately without like ripping off like a artist or something, you know. But there was a few, you know, it was quite a few years there where it was just like kind of insane, just like it was a big free for all. And like, you know, I think back to like kind of like the mid two thousands and like you know like Pitchfork and all these music sites, they would like have headlines about like records leaking and stuff, and it was just like so frustrating. It's like, why would you do that? You know, like just like encouraging all this like they would illegal activity. A, they would run a headline on it, like promoting the leak. Yeah, yeah, it was like ridiculous. But they, at some point, I guess they made a decision to stop doing that. Thankfully, but there was just like this. I don't know if you remember, it was just like there was like a few years there were just like every time a record leaked, it was like a big, big news piece. You know? Yeah. The music industry felt a little maybe slower to respond to it as well, do you think? And kind of address that problem. I guess it's a tough problem to address though. I mean we, we 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 tried. I mean, like, you know, we would have like like when we first started, we we had uh these like, you know, watermark CDs and those were like really expensive and 
still records would leak, but you could most of the time you could kind of like find out who leaked it on the watermark kind of. And now it's all like digital, which is a lot easier. I th- yeah, they still do that now with digital, don't they? Like if I get sent through a thing in a press release, if you want to download it, it's watermarked. Yeah. But it's, you know, it's obviously, you know, we don't have to like pay someone to, we pay still pay a site, but we don't have to pay to like make all the discs and the plastic and the, we have to mail them out. And it, that was, you know, like, like that's a real big hassle. It was like, did you ever hear that thing about Radiohead super gluing like the CD player shut when they were giving them out to press people? Did, were they, did someone, do I, I don't remember that, did, did people have to come to a certain location to listen to it or were they like mailing them I out? I think you had to, you went to a certain location and then they super glued uh, the CD player shut. And they super glued the headphones mm-hmm. into the headphone jack. I think it was like Kid Ata <laughs> taking it to the extreme. <laughs> yeah, and just think about like, you know, listening parties and, you know, like, I don't know, do people still have listening parties? Well, and they do them over <laughs> Zoom and lockdown, don't they? Yes. And just to think like, you know, well, like 20 years ago plus, you know, it would be fairly common to have listening parties for records, you know? Yeah, there's a certain communal aspect that's a little bit more diluted now, I guess, when it comes to the music scene. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's just like, just one of those things that like, you know, like it's expensive. You like, you have to hire out a space, you invite people. It's like, costs a lot of money to have a listening party. You know, like who wants to spend that kind of money these days? You know. I guess if you were selling the record there, you'd maybe make your money back on sales. Or you would have, I guess, maybe not so much now. Perhaps. But yeah, just think about some of the excess, you know, kind of like in the bigger parts of the music industry. Like when I was in college, I remember there was a, you know, it's a Chicago band Urge Overkill. They had uh, they signed like a deal, I think it was like Geffen or something, and they put out like a major label record. It was like a really big deal, and then we got invited to this listening party down in the city, and just went there. And I remember walking in, there was like just like stacks of like hundreds of their CDs just sitting there at the entrance for the taking. You know, just <laughs> it was just too much money then, though. It's kind of the yeah. opposite extreme. Free drinks, you know. Living the, that was that was uh, living the life back then. Did you not? Uh, was the first show that you saw in college not Nirvana as well? I think so. Yeah, that was definitely uh, that was definitely an eye opener. Got to Chicago in like September of 1991 and went to our college radio station and they were playing "Smells Like Teen Spirit." The single had been released as like a, a CD single and it was starting to get really big and our radio station was like super like fascist underground indie rock kind of station at the time. And, you know, like started getting on like MTV and commercial alternative radio stations. And then the music director of our station was just like, you can't play this song anymore. <laughs> and they like, I think they like threw it away or something. Burned it. But, uh, but yeah, my a friend, I, I had never really listened to them much until I got to college. And so when I got there, I had a friend who was like super into like, he had been listening to like, you know, indie music much longer than I had. And he, he was like, Oh, we got to get tickets to this Nirvana show. So we like went to the local record store because you had to buy tickets at a ticket master location back then. And we went to the record store in town and, and bought two tickets and went to the show at the Metro cabaret Metro. And uh, I was insane. It was just like, you know, the place is like a maybe 1200 capacity. There was like a line of people when you get in like all the way, down Clark Street, like for like a mile past, you know, Wrigley Field. I've never been to a, sh- a show like that since then. It was just like the most crowded show I've ever been to. Like I was up front by the stage for most of the show. And, and like it was so packed that there were people like jumping up and down. And like literally at one point, my body was being lifted off of the ground <laughs> because everyone was jumping and it was so crowded. Like it was. It was, and then I was starting to get a little scared because it was getting like so packed. I guess I was getting a little claustrophobic maybe. And then I was having trouble breathing because it was just like, there was just like, no air. it was just so, yeah. And so I finally like had to go to the back of the room, way in the back. And then I miss, I missed the, uh, the part where they started destroying all their instruments. I had to like, could only see a little bit of it from over people's heads, you know, like Kurt Cobain, like smashing his guitar on the drum set and that sort of thing. But uh, it was a memorable night for sure. Did it feel like a moment? Did you get a sense of what was coming from that? Uh, I mean, I was only like 18 then, so I guess I wasn't thinking in those terms, but I, you know, all I could think was just like, wow, like this is insane. Like I'd never seen anything like this before, you know? <laughs> how, how did you gauge how big a band was back then? You know, kind of pre-internet. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah. It's, 
to think about life then versus now, like there was just the, you know, like the communication just, you know, was not like it is obviously now. So we were kind of like operating in our own little world for, for a lot of, for a lot of things, you know, like, you know, we would get records sent to us at the radio station. And if we wanted to go buy stuff at record stores, we just, you know, like half the time we were just like going by what the sticker on the record said, you know, like, that sounds interesting. You know, I guess, you know, like there was CMJ and we could look at other people's playlists to get an idea where like other people were playing. But like in terms of sales numbers, like, yeah, we had no idea, you know, it was all kind of just psychological, I guess, you know, like this person's cool because of this, or this person isn't cool because of this kind of thing, you know, like, but generally speaking at that point in time, it was just like anything on a major label sucks. And, you know, anything on any label is probably decent. It's, it's very, very, uh, very clear cut. Is that barrier kind of been broken down now? I think so. Yeah. It's been, you know, I mean, there's still like some negative feelings towards major labels sometimes, but it's a, it's a little more nuanced. I think, you know, yeah. I mean, people listen to all kinds of stuff now. They'll, it's uh, always, it sometimes confuses me for my old school indie rock brain at times, you know, and like, just like why why do people who listen to this kind of music also listen to this kind of music now like this you know why do people who listen to indie rock listen to like lana del rey or Hein? you know like this doesn't strike me as interesting music at all but obviously i'm an old man so that's kind of what the label does as well though like you have completely you have things at complete opposite ends of the spectrum i guess so but i guess it's with you know it's in my spectrum i guess so it makes sense to me but when did your kind of musical taste go through its biggest change, like period of change in development? Uh, I don't know. It's always kind of evolving, you know, like I, you know, I was in college, I was listening to a lot of indie rock and, you know, jazz and I had all kinds of other interests, you know, like we had, uh, we had a store Dusty Groove in Chicago, which is still around that, uh, you know, sells mostly kind of like groove based music and soul and funk and jazz and that kind of stuff. So, you know, I was like, listening to a lot of stuff from there. And I was basically kind of just like absorbing, I was like absorbing as much as I could. And then, you know, after college, I started getting into more like electronic music and uh, like experimental, like, you know, like I was listening to like a lot of like Otecker and Aphex Twin and stuff on like, you know, Warp and Reflex and that kind of stuff. And, and from there, my, I think, you know, my focus also kind of evolved into like when I got to New York in the early late nineties, early two thousands, I started like getting into like a lot of like dance music and like, you know, house techno and uh, electro and that kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, listen to a lot of Brazilian music, like MPB kind of stuff from like the sixties and seventies and just, you know, whatever, whatever's around and sounds interesting, you know, except for, up for a listen do you feel like you can trace the kind of change of your taste through the label and what the kind of stuff you were putting out um maybe just kind of like in the just kind of like that the first couple of changes maybe just you know like the change from like electronic purely electronic to like electronic but with some like acoustic-y instruments kind of like mixed in to like the kind of just free-for-all kind of switch from like you know 2000 around 2006 or whatever and i would say it's pretty been pretty content with that kind of uh ethos since then i guess do you feel like you're ever attracted to artists that are prolific as well like if you look at the some of the bands you've out like cloud nothings and toro Moy, and you know they're putting out a lot of releases and say i mean i i just you know if i like if i like some music then that's what i'm attra- you know attracted to like i'm not i don't think about being prolific or anything so and you know when i'm first starting out artists don't have much out so i guess it's uh it's tough to say i would say some of our artists are more prolific than others you know like uh, cloud nothings or tori Mo, they put out records every year or so and then you know we've got other bands that put out records every two three four years so just kind of depends really i guess it's gotten a little easier to do the the former and kind of be prolific when you can do it from the home to a certain extent now. Yeah, I guess so. Our schedule's still kind of the same. We're not like putting out more music, I would say, or anything. But 
It's also, yeah, I guess it just depends on what kind of music you're making probably too. And like, if you've got like bandmates to deal with and you know, like jazz is, he makes a lot, most of his music, I think by himself with some guests and that kind of stuff. But when it comes to the kind of your releasing schedule and how prolific you are there, do you have quite a good sense of your kind of maximum workload now? And do you know where to kind of draw the line so you're not overworking yourself, but you're making sure that each release is kind of getting the attention it needs and deserves? Uh, yeah, definitely. You know, we don't typically like to put out more than like one release a month, I would say. And I kind of space that out like once a month, one a month. Occasionally we'll, we'll squeeze two in a month, just if there's no other kind of way around it. But that's kind of like our general way of going about things, you know. So we end up putting out, I'd say anywhere from, you know, like nine to 11 or 12 releases a, a year. And we try and be mindful of that. Like we don't want to overwork ourselves. And, you know, we've like this year, we've had quite a few releases and there people have re- records ready. And, you know, we just basically try and convince them to, you know, put it out later. And it's a little bit easier now just cause like, you know, it's like, well, this guy, this band has a record ready. They want to put it out in September. Um, but, you know, we've got someone else who wants to put a record out in September um, so then we can be like, well, you know, you can't tour anyway, so might as well, no, no rush to put it out. So let's put it out next in 2022 when there's a better chance that you might be able to tour on the record. Yeah. You were pretty committed from the start of this though, right? To like not delay many releases. Like I remember from the start, you were like, we're going to keep going because we don't know when this is going to be over. Yeah. I mean, I mean, we're a record label, so, you know, we put out records, you know, there were, we had a few artists that, you know, like a year ago. They were like, well, not sure if I should put my record out. Um, but, you know, I think we talked about it and talked to the artists and kind of convinced them that it was in everyone's best interest to just put it out. And, you know, I didn't, you know, see any point in waiting a year. You know, like you could, you know, the artists could have like another record done by then. Plus, you know, all these other people are waiting and, you know, it's like waiting for what exactly? So, you know, like a year ago, people were saying, oh, I'm not going to put people are waiting and pushing the records back to the fall of 2021 or then they're or 2020. And then they're, Oh, they're pushing the records back to, you know, the beginning of 2021. And, you know, so it's just, at some point you just got to stop thinking like that, I guess, you know, I think if you bite the bullet as well and put it out in 2020, there was probably a little bit of space opened up as a result of everyone pushing their records back. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, a few of our summer releases, I mean, obviously there's no way to know, but I feel like they definitely had more, you know, space, as you say, like they, they probably, you know, they would have done well, but I think they did probably better than they would have done just because a lot of people put the records off. And so there wasn't as much to write about. So it definitely was in our, to our advantage. I think people wanted music as well, didn't they? They wanted a distraction. They wanted something to kind of immerse themselves in. That's true. Yeah. But it was just, you know, it was just like such a weird uh, obviously it's just a weird time and it's like first like everything shuts down for like a couple of months um in like march and april and then like come may and june like you got like all these black lives matters rallies and protests and like then artists you know like first it was like people were like oh should i put a record out like i can't tour there's a pandemic like and then a couple months later it was like well this country is like convulsing and like it feels like it's falling apart and it's just this should i be releasing music like during this t- weird time like it just feels you know people are like I, you know like feels like a egotistical statement to like put out music like when all this like insanity is like and change and just stuff is going on you know so that was kind of like what we were we're dealing with yeah i guess when you're trying to release music in the craziest year in recent american history that can it can prompt some unseen problems, you know. <laughs> yeah, we did we did delay a few. Like I think, like you know, like uh, when we had one record and we were like you know supposed to release a single from the record on like a certain date, and it was just like I don't know, like I guess maybe the height of like the the protests and stuff. And I think we pushed it back like a week or two just because uh, we didn't think like many people were going to be paying attention to music, kind of at that or at least new music at that point. How did the the whole postal service thing impact you as well? I remember saying a little bit that that had a little bit of an effect with Trump trying to. Yeah, that's that's an ongoing issue with the post office. It's it hasn't been as bad lately, um, but it was definitely 
definitely had some trying experiences, you know, just, I think, I think around Christmas was definitely the worst, just like there was like stuff that we'd sent that just like would never show up at all. And a lot of stuff we were mailing, like even like domestic stuff would take stuff that would normally take, you know, most first class media mail stuff would, would take like a week or two weeks max to get anywhere in the country. And people were getting packages like one or two months later, just like crazy stuff. And when the pandemic started, we kind of stopped doing like a lot of like international mail order from here. Like we started, you know, like our UK office was doing all of our European mail order. And then we, you know, we had um, like going to like Asia and Australia and New Zealand was just like crazy. So, you know, we, we uh, started working with this company in Australia to do like our fulfillment down there. We were like mailing stuff at the beginning of the pandemic internationally and like months would go by and just like nothing. <laughs> and just like, where did this package go? You know, like it just like you look up tracking and it'd be like sitting in, you know, a warehouse in Queens in New York city for like two months or like sitting some, you know, going to Tokyo and then going to Europe. <laughs> like, like what is going on? What was causing this? Uh, I mean, there's, I guess there's a lot of factors, uh, at least to my understanding, you know, the biggest probably being just the pandemic and, less uh, flights going because you know less people were flying um a lot of our freight previously would go on like commercial planes you know like um instead of just it wasn't going on like you know fedex or ups planes the, the we would get these cheap uh shipping rates because the stuff get would get put on like commercial planes and when a lot of that dried up there wasn't as much uh supply and the demand was still there so the prices went way up and and then you know you've got like the, with the postal service here you know like you know, this, you know trump was messing around with the postal service i think part of his plan to undermine the election results and the mail-in voting and everything just that and also just the fact that because of the pandemic people weren't going to stores and people were ordering you know via amazon and all this other stuff so it's just the volume of mail circulating through the country was like a lot higher and you know i'm assuming it probably took longer to get the whole process going because of all the cleanliness and pandemic stuff and people were employees getting sick and so it's just you know not a good situation obviously does this feel like something that's going to get better or is this going to be a problem for a little while Uh, yeah i feel like it's it's kind of leveled off now like it hasn't been as frustrating lately Last month or so, has you know, we haven't had many many issues. Did uh, send a box of records to our fulfillment partner in Australia a few weeks ago, and they got it. And it was literally like they sent pictures of it, and it was like literally like wide open, <laughs> and like Jeez. someone had like put a piece of string around it or something, which is like really annoying. But uh, I don't know. I guess when and if the pandemic ends and people start flying again, maybe that'll help with some of the international uh, shipping issues that we've experienced. I guess the uh, U.S. government will need to put a, a bit more money into the post office to get it uh, to, get to improve. But You think the dams would do that, though? I guess so. I mean, you know, it's like the post office doesn't never makes money, so I guess some people get all worked up about that. And we should not have the post office. It doesn't make money, but... You know, it's very like, important public service, though. <laughs> Yeah, it's a public service. It's never it's never intended to make money. Yeah. Like you don't complain that the garbage collectors don't make money or something. I'm like, Was the whole kind of post office thing, is that partly why the physical release of the compilation is coming out in March? Like coming out a little bit later than when it went out digitally? I don't know if it was because of the post office, but it just kinda like I think our general thinking now is you know, with these kind of releases, it, uh, it can be a little flexible with like something like that. It's not like a huge seller, you know, like the audio was ready. So we just figured we, you know, we'd announce it. We put the pre-orders up for people who want to buy the physical. And then if they didn't want to, if they just want to listen to it, they can listen to it online. And, you know, another pandemic related problem is that, you know, just the vinyl production times are just taking longer and longer. So we just figured, you know, We'll, we'll, we'll do it this way, and then uh, when, when the records are ready, we'll ship them out. Hopefully, we'll make our release date for our distributor, but we've had a couple of instances 
you know, last year where we've had to push things back just because it's taken forever to make records now, you know? Yeah. Does it just feel a little bit more unpredictable now? Like you don't know what could possibly happen at some point along the production line? Sometimes, yeah. I mean, definitely like, you know, it's like when I started label, you know, we planned things maybe two or three months in advance and that was totally fine and weren't as many people making records back then. And then maybe like 10 years later, like more people started making records and then we started working on like four month lead times or four and a half month lead times. And we did that for a while and just, you know, in the past year and now we've had to move back to like six months uh, lead time just cause if I had to guess, it's just like a few different things like, you know, the pandemic is, you know, plants are, some plants are going or closing for periods of time when people get sick or whatever. And then, so, and then, um, because people can't tour, I think a lot of people are putting their money and making more records now. So you've got more records and, and there's been like an explosion in LP plants, but still, it's just like, there's still like so much demand. It's just insane to think about like all the records that are being made. Just as long as the bubble doesn't burst. Like it's still a period now where vinyl sales are increasing every year, but you don't want all these plants to be built yeah. and then for it to, you know, stagnate. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like the bubble might be for like collectors and stuff, but I mean, I don't think it's going to burst. It might, maybe it might slow down, but it's been crazy just to think about how or the core of our business is obviously the same. We, you know, we put out records, but just some of the subtle shifts over the past year because of the pandemic, like we've, We've been selling so much more online. Like I've, I've, I've had to do all the mail order since uh, the pandemic, since you know no one's in the office anymore except me. And I was looking like at our PayPal statements and like our month-to-month sales. It was like from like January and February of like 2020 to like March and April. Like it just like went up like fourfold, just like the amount of sales via PayPal. We're like selling more, I think on our website than like our distributor is selling in the States. So that's crazy. Yeah. Just cause you know, I guess people, you know, probably I would imagine that people don't want to go to stores. They'd rather just buy the records from the comfort of their home. And I think that's probably the dri- driving factor. And we've been trying to take advantage of that a little bit and kind of like trying to put together like special releases that are only available on our website. And I feel like that's kind of like, something that we'll be spending more time with in the future. That's kind of what you, yeah, you want to draw people towards you directly. But then, yeah, yeah. it's t- it's tricky because you don't want to isolate the record stores either. It's a fine balance. Yeah, I mean, we still, we're not like ignoring record stores. You know, I feel like we still are doing our share. You know, like we've, uh, we're doing like a 10 year anniversary edition of Tori Moi Underneath the Pine. We had this little like special promo thing where we made like a, pine seeds packet with like some artwork on it that we're just sending to the record stores here to help them with the release. So we we usually like to do stuff like that or make a special postcard or a special tchotchke or something. With this kind of compilation coming out and, you know, a couple of re-releases as well, like you've seen the Tori M1 and I know you did the first Cloud Nothings record as well, came out, was it January? I got re-released? Yeah, I mean, we we did the record, uh, well, I guess, you know, uh, Dylan's, friend put it out originally on LP and then back in like 2010 we put it out on CD because it never got released on CD and digitally and that was the way it was for a while and then you know like maybe a year or so ago we started talking about well maybe we should you know we should reissue it on vinyl again since it hasn't been available on vinyl for so long and so yeah we put it together and threw in some bonus tracks and that was that do you find yourself kind of reflecting on the label a little bit more now with these re-releases and the compilation and everything and the anniversary? Uh, it's not so much. I think more about my own personal past than, than the record label past, to be honest. But um, just because like, I feel like you know, the pandemic, you know, with not as much stuff to do. Everyone kind of like is, thinks about the, the good old days, so to speak, keeping the, entertaining themselves until this thing hopefully passes. I think I'm still musically moving forward. I would, this, that's how I say it. I, you know, I'm not the kind of person who I'm still always looking to listen to new music and new records that I haven't heard. And I guess that's why I'm part of the reason why I'm in this position. You know, I feel like you know, most people will probably be happy to have their five or 10 records that they listen to, but that's, you know, it's not how I am for better or worse. Where have you found your mind kind of wandering back to 
when thinking about your past? What kind of period? Uh, you know, just reflecting on, on my life and uh, how to make it better and just how to be a better person and just kind of personal, personal stuff, I guess, really. Have you implemented any changes in that way since the pandemic started? Have you kind of changed anything? You know, it's, you know, it's kind of hard to, to change who you are, but, uh, you know, it's definitely work, worth working on and, you know, without going into to super details, just trying and working on character issues, you know, that you feel like could be changed or would make life better. And so it's, it's a constant, constant battle, I guess. With the pandemic kind of prompting that reflection, did you notice that parallel in anything thinking about the label as well? Did you notice anything about that you wanted to tweak and maybe change slightly? I don't think so. I mean, it just, it's just such a crazy time to be, I guess, alive. And mostly we've just been working so much on just keeping the ship sailing, you know? I guess there isn't a whole lot of time to think about that kind of stuff. I spend my, my free time doing mail order these days, so <laughs> it's, uh, it's not... Uh, not a lot of time with me just kind of like, and, you know, I've got kids and so I, I'm not really like, I don't have a lot of time to just sit around and like, you know, be like, oh yeah, I like, to, I like to put out more country music. Do you not find your mind wandering a little bit when you're doing the mail orders? <laughs> Maybe sometimes. I, it depends on my brain at, when, at any given time. Sometimes I do mail order and it's just like, I really don't want to be doing this right now. And I'm like distracting myself and going on the internet and like, I don't know, reading stuff and then go back to it and other times i can get in the zone and just like pump out like a bunch of orders in like in a couple hours yeah i'm, I'm i guess i'm just the kind of I'm, I'm not like a, a big multitasking kind of person like i just am i can do i'm i just want to do one thing and do it well at any given time what's the record for mail orders i couldn't tell you I, you know definitely done hundreds i did uh i did a few hundred over over the weekend the new cloud nothings record and the we got a batch of the underneath the pine reissues so I was packing those up and then we got 50 more Clyde Nothings records I'm going to have to pack up today or tomorrow and then next week we'll get the rest of the underneath the pine records so I'm going to do a few more hundred of those so it's had a break for a while but you know and then we're, you know we're supposed to get uh, probably get those Sonic Boom remix records in the, later this month so Oof. <laughs> It's it's funny, you were saying that, that you're not, or just a little while about that, you're not a massive multitasker and you tend to kind of focus on one thing at a time. Is that a trait that kind of stands you in good stead for running a label? I guess so. I mean, yeah, I just, when I think back, you know, like, you know, I've got a, I've got a staff now, but you know, I've got a few people who, empl- who work for Car Park. And, uh, but, you know, like 11 plus years ago, it was mostly just me and, you know, I had like, publicists and radio promoters I'd hired, but I didn't have a staff and it was just me. And just to think about like, I, I guess, you know, the focus that I had then, like I would literally just like sit in front of my computer, like almost all day. And just, I was just like sending emails and like, I was just doing everything. So just 10 in the morning to 10 at night, you know, just or longer. So just kind of crazy to think about that then. Does it take a certain type of personality to run a label or to start a label in that way? Oh, I guess so. I guess you have to be pretty, pretty obsessed with music and just driven to want to get your label out there. And, and then, you know, also then you just have the other aspect, which is even, which is more difficult of just finding music that resonates with people. That's the hard part, you know, we had a couple of really successes kind of on the lower end, you know, smaller successes starting off and, you know, it took a, I feel like it took really a few years really for me to really get a good understanding of how the, you know, music industry works and what's popular and what's not so popular and what's not popular at all. And I felt like when, you know, when I first started, I was kind of like in my, I was like living in New York city and kind of in like New York city bubble. You can go to like shows with hundreds of people listening to like totally insane music. Whereas, you know, when I moved down to DC and you, same show where there would be like hundreds of people in New York and you come to DC and there's like 10 people at the show. <laughs> so it just kind of helps put things in perspective for how the rest of the, the world works, I guess, musically. Did that impact your drive? Did it make you kind of more determined when you say that? I don't know if it, I mean, 
did that. It just maybe changed, helped, helped uh, clarify my, my focus and what I wanted to do with the label and kind of helped get car park to that kind of like anything goes mentality, I guess, or, you know, cause I was just like, you know, I can't, if I want this to be like a sustainable, profitable business, like I can't just keep putting out like IDM or experimental electronic music, like that's just not gonna, it's not gonna cut it. So I need to, need to broaden the horizon, so to speak, and put out some music that's gonna resonate with a, a wider number of people. And here we are today. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> luckily, luckily worked out pretty well. So very grateful. We've, you know, I feel like, you know, running a label is kind of like, kind of like a legalized form of gambling in many ways. So it's just, you know, if you pick a band, it's kind of almost at random, you like them, but you know, what does that mean exactly? And then you spend lots of money trying to convince other people that they should like them too and give money to them. Yeah, it's just all psychology, really. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.